Section 30 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20 English Society During the Wars of the Roses. Part 2. The Church in England had an important part in the national life during the 15th century. The Archbishop of Canterbury was always recognized as the first constitutional adviser of the crown. The prelates were a distinguished body of men, sometimes of the highest birth, like Cardinal Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, the grand-uncle of Henry VI, sometimes sprung from yeoman parents, like Archbishop Chichley, who died in 1443, the founder of All Souls College, or Bishop Wainfleet, the founder of Magdalen Hall in the University of Oxford. In England, the Church had always been strongly national. From the time of William the Conqueror, the sovereign rights of the English crown over churchmen had been jealously guarded. But under the Lancastrian kings, who figured throughout as strictly orthodox sons of the Catholic Church, the claims of the Pope were again advanced. This was the more easily done under the pious and weak rule of Henry VI. The Pope was allowed to fill up English seas by provision. Even a few Italian absentees were permitted to enjoy the fruits of English dioceses. The interference of the papacy with the appointment of bishops and abbots was all the greater encroachment on the national liberties because the bishops and mitred abbots had a majority in the House of Lords. The average attendance of temporal peers was a little under forty. The bishops and mitred abbots could number forty-six. The docility of the Lancastrian kings toward the papacy really strengthened the reaction towards a strong national control, which is so marked under the first two Tudor monarchs. The church was wealthy and powerful, the monasteries being great landowners. Yet, as the lists compiled at the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII show, the wealth of the church was not so great as people thought. The great landed corporations had suffered from the rise in wages and the decay of tillage which took place after the Black Death and Peasants' Revolt. Intellectually, too, the church had suffered from its very strength. Aided by the secular arm under the Lancastrians, she had reduced Lollardy to feebleness and obscurity. But in doing this, the Church had herself suffered. She lacked the stimulus of opposition. She dominated the schools of learning too strictly for intellectual liberty. The best intellect among the clergy was that of Reginald Peacock, Bishop of Chichester. He was tried by the archbishop and was compelled to resign his see in 1457. Although in the 15th century noble foundations arose in Oxford and Cambridge, their record of achievement in the domain of learning is not great. This intellectual barrenness reacted on the condition of the church. It affected the mental vigor of candidates for ordination. It was not until the revival of learning reached England from the continent that a successful effort was made to renew the intellectual spirit of the national church and the universities. Bishop Fox's foundation at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, in 1516, in its early brilliant history, showed the Renaissance at its best. 
a little was done too under the yorkist kings caxton enjoyed the favour of edward the fourth and richard the third and had the support of a royal pension john tiptoft earl of worcester constable and butcher of england was a graduate both of balliol and padua a student of greek and a supporter of caxton but the intellectual record of the church under the yorkists cannot be reckoned high the chief components of the clerical estate of the realm were the prelates the lower secular clergy and the regulars or monastics of these the great bishops in the period of the wars of the roses are mainly to be noticed in their attempts to keep the peace archbishop neville of york it is true acted something of the part of an intriguer and is too often found cooperating in the ambitious schemes of his great brother warwick in yorkshire or calais or london but thomas birchier who was archbishop of canterbury from fourteen fifty four to fourteen eighty six acted a better part his proclivities were distinctly yorkist and in some ways notably when edward the fourth had to flee the country in fourteen seventy he definitely assisted the yorkist king but from the first to last he tried to moderate the rancour of parties as in the pacification in st paul's on march twenty fifth fourteen fifty eight perhaps his desire for peace led him to acquiesce rather too facilely in the accomplished work of the strong hand as when he consented to the coronation of richard the third the lower secular clergy seem to have pursued their even way in the fifteenth century as has already been noticed the state of learning among them was not high according to bishop peacock of chichester the best men were not attracted into the church because promotion among the lower ranks of the clergy was rare throughout the fifteenth century they seem to have ceased attending through their proctors or delegates in parliament instead they taxed themselves for national purposes in the convocations which generally met about the same time as parliament the numbers of the secular clergy were very large ordinations were held four times a year and on each occasion about a hundred candidates were admitted to holy orders they could all read and write at least but they were too numerous for all of them to have cures of souls thus besides the respectable and useful parish priests there was a large number of clergy who had no definite charge but gained a precarious living by saying masses for the dead such priests are said to have comprised actually a majority of the clergy idle and celibate their moral standard was not high the monastic clergy emerge into history through the chronicles which they still compiled such as the chronicle of croyland and lincolnshire or of st albans the wars of the roses seem to have left them untouched henry the sixth was too orthodox to allow his men much license and edward the fourth never showed any ill-feeling against the monks monasteries indeed exercised a wholesome influence in moderating the rigour of civil war it was in the sanctuary of westminster abbey that edward's wife queen elizabeth took refuge when her husband had to flee the country in fourteen seventy and it was while in sanctuary that the queen gave birth to a son the ill-fated edward v 
after the two battles of st albans the monastery of that town offered a christian burial to the dead after the battle of tewkesbury the abbey there performed a similar pious duty and was able even to save the lives of the less distinguished of the fugitives who sought for sanctuary the monks of the time seem to have led a life to which little objection could be taken they are known to have been charitable towards strangers and poor people they performed their religious services and helped out the parochial system but their usefulness in the fifteenth century cannot be placed very high the historians of croyland and st albans have nothing to say about the monks's intellectual accomplishments about their industry learning or teaching they have very little indeed to say about the religious life at all the monks were interested in the political events of the time an occasional visit from the king excited them but the domestic questions to judge from the chronicles which interested them most intimately were bound up with their endowments they had to be very wary or some skilful and unscrupulous man at court might get a conveyance of some of the monastic land they had to be careful to safeguard their exemptions from the statute of mortmain they had to keep an eye upon the privy council the truth is probably that the monasteries were no longer very wealthy it was difficult for them to adjust themselves to the changing conditions of agriculture they did not get the pick of the population for the most enterprising men preferred the great and popular callings of the soldier the lawyer and the merchant the monks were out of the main stream of national life they did little to justify their existence they neglected their opportunities for instance of becoming great educational centres for which they were well fitted the need for education was supplied by the great colleges of secular not monastic priests founded by henry the sixth eton and king's college just as in the previous century william wickham had turned aside from the monastic system for his noble educational foundations of winchester and new college the wars of the roses were fought chiefly under the influence of the barons who with their retainers formed the bulk of every small army that fought in the battles the number of barons was not high although their property taken altogether was very large in the time of edward i the dignity of a baron seems to have depended on his receiving a summons to parliament but from about the year fourteen forty six barony by patent superseded barony by writ thus the highest number of barons existing at one time in the reign of henry the sixth was probably sixty-seven or sixty-eight but the number in parliament varied for during the wars of the roses the king naturally did not summon his enemies who were in the field the average number of barons summoned in the reign of henry the sixth was about forty-eight or forty-nine the largest number summoned by edward the fourth at one time was fifty it would be difficult to draw up lists showing the lords of the lancastrian and yorkist parties respectively for the same family was not always on the same side for instance the lord audley who was killed fighting for lancaster at the battle of blore heath in fourteen fifty nine was succeeded by his son a yorkist lord audley a companion of warwick and edward of march at calais in fourteen sixty another lord the earl of devonshire supported richard of york in the critical year 
1452, but is found fighting for King Henry VI at the First Battle of St. Albans in 1455. However, such instances are rare. On the whole, noble families remained consistent in their attachments. I saw, wrote Philippe de Comines in his memoirs, the Duke of Exeter, but he concealed his name, following the Duke of Burgundy's train, barefoot and barelegged, begging for his bread from door to door. This person was the next of the house of Lancaster, and had married King Edward's sister. Although, like Sir Rafe Percy, they sometimes made terms with the enemy, yet they generally returned to the old attachment. They saved the bird in their bosom. It has often been said that the Wars of the Roses were a series of factious fights between great barons, yet the Yorkist party, which was ultimately victorious, numbered much fewer barons than the Lancastrian. The Yorkist king could not have won if he had only had his baronial supporters. Other classes had opinions and made them felt. The middle classes held ultimately the balance of power. A majority of the peers undoubtedly supported the Lancastrian cause. The Yorkist peers included many barons, but their opponents had most of the higher ranks of nobility. Thus among the Lancastrians were the Duke of Somerset, Beaufort, the Duke of Exeter, Holland, the Duke of Buckingham, Stafford, the Earls of Northumberland, Percy, Westmoreland, Neville, Pembroke, Tudor, Shrewsbury, Talbot, Oxford, De Vere, Devonshire, Courtney, Wiltshire, Butler. The Yorkist list is much shorter. It included two dukes, Norfolk and Suffolk, but few earls. The chief are Salisbury and Warwick, that's Neville, Essex, Berkshire, Worcester, Tiptoft, and Arundel, Fitzalan. Among barons, the Lancastrians had a strong majority. Chief among these were Lords Clifford, Ruse, Beaumont, Lyle, Stanley, Hungerford, Lovell, Rivers, Wells. The chief Yorkist barons were the Lords Bonville, Sturton, Scroop, Lumley, and several marcher lords with the addition of some baronies which were in the families of the earls of Essex and Salisbury. It cannot be said that any part of the country was definitely Lancastrian or Yorkist. In practically every county both parties were represented. The Yorkists were very strong on the Welsh March, especially in the centre, where were the great estates belonging to the earldom of March, to which Richard, Duke of York, had succeeded. There he had the castles of Ludlow and Wigmore. But the Lancastrians were also strong in Wales, for in the north they had the earldom of Chester, held by the crown, and in the south they had the lordship of Monmouth, belonging to the house of Lancaster, and the Tudor earldom of Pembroke. In the north of England, the Duke of York had the lordship of Wakefield, with the great castle of Sandal nearby, while the Earl of Warwick had the castle of Middleham but the Lancastrian party was even stronger, for the Earl of Northumberland had great estates, both in Northumberland and in Yorkshire. Another Lancastrian, Lord Clifford, had his seat at Skipton, and the Earl of Westmoreland, also Lancastrian, controlled a great part of the country from which he took his title. In the east there were the powerful Yorkist Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, but Lincoln had the Lancastrian Lord Wells, along with the Yorkist, Lord Cromwell. 
Essex had the Lancastrian Earl of Oxford, but the Yorkist Earl of Essex, although he had not his chief interest there, was not without property and influence. Even in Norfolk and Suffolk, there was a great deal of Lancastrian interest held by Lord Mollins and others. In the south, the two parties were mingled. Kent, partly owing to the interest of Lord Cobham, was Yorkist, and the Earl of Arundel, Yorkist, was strong in Sussex. But curiously enough, so was the Lancastrian house of Percy at Petworth. The Beaufort family had estates in Dorset and Somerset, the Earl of Devonshire in Devon, but the Yorkist Earl of Salisbury had estates in Dorset as well as in Wiltshire. In the Midlands the two parties must have been fairly equally balanced. The Earl of Warwick had the castle of that name, but attached to the Duchy of Lancaster, held by Henry the Sixth, were many castles, honours, and manors scattered everywhere over the Midlands. The truth is that the great families of England had so frequently intermarried that nearly every noble house which survived had ceased to be purely local, and now held estates and much local influence in widely different parts of the country. Any coloured map of England, accurately showing all the distribution of Yorkist and Lancastrian estates, would be a bewildering mosaic. The wealth of the barons during the Wars of the Roses was undoubtedly large. It is to be judged from the size of their households rather than from the amount of their incomes. It is very difficult to ascertain the value of money in the 15th century as compared with that of the present day. Then, five hundred pounds was considered to be a sufficient income for a baron so it may be supposed that money was much scarcer in those days and that its purchasing power was at least ten times greater than to-day the households of the nobility were on a grand scale from the kings which numbered over five hundred inmates and cost thirteen thousand pounds annually down to a baron's which had twenty-five people and cost five hundred pounds but many lords must have been a great deal wealthier, owing to their accumulation of the titles and estates of extinct families. It was this that made the barons a danger to order in England. There were too few of them, and their holdings in land were too great in proportion to the rest of the population. It has been estimated that the population of England in 1485 was about three millions, Yet while the population had been steadily increasing since the Black Death of 1349 and 50, the numbers of the baronage had been getting smaller. New creations were comparatively few, while the extinction of noble families through war and other causes was fairly common. The lands of extinct families were generally absorbed into some other house, either through intermarriage or by grant of the king thus the land collectively held by the baronage was not diminishing in the first half of the fifteenth century it tended to increase owing to grants out of the crown lands so it came about that in the wars of the roses a comparatively small number of lords held a large amount of land the individual barons were too powerful having almost the influence of kings in their great domains for this reason Although the middle classes really held the balance of power within the kingdom, particular barons were enormously powerful and exercised an influence out of all proportion to the numbers of their class. 
it was not until the tudors began the long series of wise promotions from among the country gentry that the number of barons assumed once more a due proportion toward the other classes in the kingdom the type of a great baron during the wars of the roses is of course the earl of warwick picked out by lytton to exemplify the last of the barons he was indeed typical by reason of his wealth his titles his relatives so magnificent was he in his housekeeping that at his table it is said six entire oxen were consumed every day his retainers were numerous and any of their friends could share in the earl's roasts and take away as much as could be carried on a long dagger wherever the earl of warwick happened to be living at the time the neighbourhood taverns never lacked meat he was wealthy not only because of his estates but by reason of the high offices which he held under the crown the governorship of calais alone was said to be worth fifteen hundred crowns a year in all in the years between fourteen sixty one and fourteen seventy one he was considered to be in the enjoyment of pensions amounting annually to eighty thousand crowns this was a revenue almost fit for a king in those days the family of neville furnishes a good instance of the accumulation of lands and titles warwick himself succeeded to the great beecham estates and the title of earl of warwick in fourteen forty nine through his wife anne beecham heiress of the last earl on the death of his father at the battle of wakefield in fourteen sixty he also became earl of salisbury this earldom his father had himself acquired by marriage in fourteen twenty five with alice only child of thomas de montacute fourth earl of salisbury warwick's three uncles brothers of salisbury were also barons william was baron folkenberg through his marriage about the year fourteen twenty four to joan heiress of the last baron folkenberg of skelton castle yorkshire edward was baron burgoveny through his marriage with elizabeth sole heiress of that barony which carried with it estates in the valley of the usk george was baron latimer a peerage which had been in the neville family for two generations but which had come to it by marriage to these five peerages of the yorkist nevilles must be added the barony of montague granted to warwick's brother john in fourteen sixty one another brother george was archbishop of york the ramifications of this wonderful family did not end here for the elder branch held the earldom of westmoreland all through the wars of the roses generally supporting the lancastrian cause yet the nevilles were not the only family with almost royal power in england the percys with their estates in northumberland yorkshire and sussex were almost equally powerful they had the advantage too of greater concentration for they had not branched out into different lines like the nevilles it is their feud or private war with the salisbury nevilles one of whose seats was at middleham in yorkshire in fourteen forty nine that is taken by william of worcester as the actual starting point of the wars of the roses in the fifteenth century a great lord lived like a king he went with his enormous household from one castle to another living at each place upon the produce of his estates the style of housekeeping in a lord's castle is compared by bishop stubbs to that of a college at the present day 
the number of servants was numerous the food consumed was on a grand scale officials of good education and standing looked after the proper collection of rents and dues the repair of buildings the reception and distribution of food supplies the accounts of a great lord were like those of a small kingdom a regular staff of clerks was maintained to keep them properly every item was carefully entered in the right place the seal of the lord was necessary to complete every important transaction and lest anything should go amiss all accounts were audited quarterly the register of john of gaunt has been edited and published giving a vivid idea of the elaborate complex and carefully managed system of a great medieval landholder if the accounts of the percys or nevilles were published they would show a similar great system a high and wealthy nobleman of the lancastrian period had in his estates and houses to learn the business of a public administrator and treasurer this is why in the middle ages it was possible for a noble suddenly to be made constable or treasurer of england it was no new work to him only on a somewhat bigger scale than what he had already known this state of things was not without certain advantages for the country at large the noble was a man trained in the habits of business with some knowledge of the law as well as of military science his household was a school where youths of good birth might learn manners and something of business too the estates carefully administered maintained large numbers of well-to-do tenants the famous yeomen of the wars between england and france but the influence of the lord as a centre of social life was greatly misused when he took to distributing his honourable badge to all manner of men who had no claim either as his tenants or as members of his household this evil system of livery as the wearing of a lord's badge came to be known spoiled all chance of law and order in the country during the lancastrian period any man of lawless inclinations disbanded soldier hardy vagrant highway robber might apply for the badge of some lord the lord with an eye to civil war in the near future might readily consent to increase the number of his clients by the easy grant of a badge the rascal thus publicly marked as the client of the earl of warwick or northumberland was protected as by a government's uniform he had assumed a quasi-legal position under cover of which he might commit acts gravely detrimental to the public peace frequent statutes bear witness to the prevalence of this evil in the reign of henry the fourth it was enacted that no one should receive badges except bona fide servants or tenants of a lord otherwise badges might only be worn when men were on active service on the marches but the law was evaded and publicly flouted the evil practice went on through the century edward the fourth did something to restrain it but it was not until the reign of henry the seventh that livery and maintenance were definitely suppressed through the agency of the star chamber end of section thirty